Tonight is uh, our first virtual School of Faith uh, event for the fall, and we are ecstatic to welcome back uh, Joshua Ryan Butler, who is here. Y'all give him some, you know, clap emojis if you can to give him the welcome he deserves. Well, Josh, welcome, man, and just thought you could start with telling us a little bit, yeah, about you personally, and um, and then also, yeah, maybe what what led you to some of these difficult topics, including that in your story? Would love to hear parts of that, man. Great, no, definitely. It's awesome to be with you guys. Thanks for letting me join. Um, yeah, so I'm a pastor here in the Phoenix area. We're in Tempe, which is uh, kind of ASU, Arizona State University. It's kind of a major uh, college town, uh, which has been fun. I've been here about just a little over two years. Uh, pastoring a church here. Uh, my wife, Polly, and I, we've got three young kids, um, 11-year-old daughter, and then seven and six-year-old boys. Prior to that, originally was from uh, the Northwest, uh, Portland. That's where Chris and I really got to know each other up in Oregon. So I'm kind of Oregon, Northwest boy, born and raised. Uh, uh, grew up in Oregon, uh, short version. You didn't really grow up in the faith. Uh, then I went to University of Oregon and had this encounter with Jesus there and just kind of rocked my world. And was doing a lot more uh, kind of international work, like international nonprofit type stuff. And then, um, long story short, uh, felt I, I was involved with a church plant and got asked to come on staff and said, no way, because I was not planning on ministry wasn't the thing. And they were like, will you pray about it? It's like, all right, I'll pray about it. So I prayed about it. And there was a very clear, for the next couple of weeks, God saying, hey, this is the next season. So I was a pastor in Portland for about 15 years and just loved it. And very long story, but God called us into this new season here in Phoenix. But um, man, it's it's been a it's been a fun ride. That's a yeah, that's a little bit of the backstory to where where we're at now. But uh, as far as kind of you know, I, I love helping people who wrestle with some of the tough topics of the faith, um, some of the tough questions surrounding Jesus and the Christian faith. A lot of that came out of uh, my college experience. So I was at University of Oregon. Uh, and like I said, I had this encounter with Jesus. And I found myself telling my friends, my roommates, people around me, man, God's so good. And suddenly just getting bombarded with all of the, how can God be good if, you know, uh, and just a lot of hostility. And, and I'm like, man, I didn't even bring up these. I remember my roommate, I was like, uh, man, God's so good. I had this encounter with Jesus. And here's what happened. And he heard me and his first question back was like, do you think I'm going to hell now? <laughs> I was like, I didn't even bring up hell. I wasn't even thinking about that. That wasn't even on my radar. Uh, but for him, you know, that, that was the question. And over time, I think my, my friend's questions kind of became some of mine too. Kind of go, well, what do I believe about this? Or what does the Bible have to say about this? And it kind of pressed me deeper into the biblical story. Um, so that was one factor was just kind of being in relationship with a lot of folks who had these questions for me as a Christian and me processing them myself. Uh, a second factor was, um, dude, I fell in love with the Bible. I must have read in the Bible a bunch, just going, man, the picture I'm seeing seems different than what my friends seem to think. You know, like it seems like there's a caricature out there of what's really going on here. And the more I pressed into the biblical story, into historic Christian tradition, just find like, I, I think there's a bigger picture here that's way more beautiful and compelling than some of the caricatures that are out there today. The third big factor uh, was skeletons, you know, particularly um, 
that the skeletons of god's closet uh that book uh, gets into the three topics that i really wrestled with the most when i was in college uh hell judgment and holy war so the premise of the book if you're unfamiliar is the skeletons of god's closet uh, and the idea there is that a lot of us fear God's kind of hiding these skeletons in the closet, these tough topics where if we really opened up the closet doors, opened up scripture to take a closer look, I think many of us fear that we'd actually find God's not truly good or worthy of our trust. Yet I think it's because we often have a caricature of what's going on in the biblical story. So the book tries to offer some paradigm shifts that confront aspects of the caricatures and can help us reclaim a greater confidence that God is good through and through all the way down in his very bones. And not just in spite of these topics, but even because of them, we can see God's goodness in them. And, uh, and one of the things I wanted to do in writing that though, was I found when people talked about, say hell or judgment, or it was often very abstract and ethereal and way out there. And what I found was, you know, I was working uh, with an anti-trafficking uh, organization on the border of Thailand and Burma for one season and then was working with an uh, indigenous rights organization with uh, some indigenous groups globally that were losing their lands and were facing extreme poverty and gnarly issues. And then I was working another uh, season with like a post-genocide uh, group in Rwanda and later in Cambodia, uh, some reconciliation and rebuilding work after that. And what I found was like, man, these topics actually, uh, for me, were not abstract they really spoke powerfully into realities like genocide and trafficking and greed and a lot of the gnarly things that we see going on in our world today. And so part of my hope was to help people who wrestle with those topics, but also to try and talk about them in a way that spoke, speaks into uh, some of the real pressing problems of our world today and, and rather than just being kind of abstract and, and ethereal and out there. Um, so, yeah, and then the the same with uh, the second book, The Pursuing God, gets into some other ones like sacrifice, wrath, and atonement, uh, what's going on at the cross with Jesus and God the Father and God the Son, and how do we make sense of uh, some of those themes around there, uh, but really driven around the theme of God's relentless pursuit of his world to restore and heal and make whole what sin has broken. That's a little the backdrop that's super super helpful and yeah we have talked a lot um church about skeletons and we've we've read it with our proteges but the pursuing god i will say another great book which is which is his other book and i remember josh i think one of the first times we met you were writing that and i was asking you what you were doing and you were like yeah i think i'm gonna do god's wrath i'm like do, do you want to just take a break dude because you're just like you're tackling all the hard stuff and then We'll talk about the next book coming out, uh, which is uh, not not shying away from another difficult subject. So, you know, let's let's dive into to the to the first kind of topic, which we got some questions on, which which you address in your book. It's the first section of your book um, about hell, and I think the thing I wanted you to set up um, it was kind of a thread in all the questions, but just summarizing the difference between our cultural view of heaven and hell. And really what the Bible, the picture the Bible paints about hell, because um, we make hell maybe more of a major player um, and more of a major subject than the Bible itself does. So maybe start by breaking that up a little bit so that we can have a good foundation for our discussion. Great. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot here. We could talk for an hour or even the things that are like a whole day, day long. So we, we could talk for a lot, but to try and summarize 
Uh, what I try and do in the book is offer uh, typically four main paradigm shifts with the kind of cultural caricature and I think a more biblical and historically faithful uh, understanding. And the first paradigm shift would have to do with the story and the storyline going, God is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. Uh, and I think that's different from the caricature story is often like God's kind of on a mission to get some people up to heaven and other people down to hell. And in that story, like heaven and hell don't really seem related. One's just kind of reward. The other one's just judgment. And it's hard to make sense of how they relate to each other. But the shift there is going in the biblical story, uh, heaven's primary counterpart is not hell, it's earth. Uh, so as an example, um, the words heaven and earth appear together in the same verse, like over 200 times in the biblical story. It's almost, you think of it almost like heaven and earth as being like this narrative thread that weaves the story of the Bible together as a whole. Uh, heaven and hell never appear together in the same verse. Now they do have a relationship to each other, but uh, the Bible tends to frame that relationship differently than we do. And part of my claim is, you know, I think we get hell wrong in part because we get heaven and earth wrong. When we reclaim this biblical storyline of heaven and earth, the smaller subtopic of hell starts to make more sense. And so the biblical storyline in short is that um, God has created heaven and earth good, but we have kind of ruptured or torn the fabric of creation of heaven and earth with sin. And so God, because he is good, he is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth, to bring back together what our sin has torn apart, uh, to heal and hate, make whole his, his creation and humanity uh, from the destructive power of hell. And so it's God's goodness that gives rise to his desire to reconcile. And the power of hell is precisely the thing that uh, we need to be reconciled from, in essence, right? Um, another paradigm shift would be the location of hell. So I think that many people have a picture that hell's like this underground torture chamber, uh, deep down in the belly of the earth or something like that, right? And one thing we see is that uh, hell's location in the New Testament is not underground. It's actually outside the city. What I mean by that is that the picture that Jesus gives, the main word that Jesus uses for hell is it gets translated into English as hell is the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna was an actual physical place just outside Jerusalem's walls. And it was this infamous place in the Old Testament. You can read about it. The Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Ben-Hinnom shows up a lot. And it's a place that was famous for child sacrifice. It's where people would go outside the city of Jerusalem. They'd light the flames and worship of other gods and they'd murder their children. So for the prophets, this becomes this uh, symbol of how far gone God's people have become of their idolatry and of their injustice. But the storyline goes, because God is good, he's going to come back to Jerusalem. He's going to liberate his capital of Jerusalem uh, from all those forces that stand opposed to his good kingdom. He's going to kick out the unrepentant rebels who refuse to change their ways. And where's he going to kick them out to? Well, he's going to kick them outside into Gehenna, into the Valley of Hinnom, is the imagery that gets picked up by the prophets. And so Jesus is drawing on this hope for God to return as the good king, to establish his capital, you know, to establish his kingdom into the earth and to deal with the impenitent rebellion, like those who are stubbornly and hard-heartedly opposed to and resisting uh, the goodness of who God is and his ways. So, <clears throat> so that would be the second, the location being outside the city. Uh, third paradigm shift would be the purpose, where I think a lot of people think it's uh, torture, right? The underground torture chamber that God's like just whipping people or I don't know, what, whatever, little devils with fiery pitchforks or something. Uh, but uh, to make the case that biblically, I think we see the primary purpose is protection. 
that God protects his kingdom from the power of unrepentant sin. A uh, few examples of, of this, I think in uh, Isaiah, he famously says, you know, on that day, God says, when I establish my kingdom, no longer will they hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. And the holy mountain is Mount Zion, it's Jerusalem. And he's going, when I establish my kingdom, they're no longer gonna be able to hurt and destroy and tear apart uh, the power of sin, so I can be able to wreak havoc anymore. Uh, for the earth will be full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. I think the picture there is that God's going to establish his kingdom and from his capital into all the earth, and he's going to protect it from those forces that hurt or destroy the day. Uh, a similar picture is in Zechariah. It's in Zechariah 2, and I love this verse. It's, um, he sees this vision uh, where God says, this vision of Jerusalem when God establishes his kingdom again. And God says, on that day, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I love that picture. God's going like, tear down the walls to my city, tear down the walls to my house, because I want everyone who will come in, anyone who wants to be a part of this party, who's going to bend the knee and worship and wants to become a part of my kingdom, I'm making room for any and all who, who want to come in. But for an ancient audience back then, this raised an important question because the walls were what protected you from invasion, from hostile, hostile outsiders. So the question naturally becomes like, well, God, that's great. You want to tear down the walls of your house and everything, but what's going to keep, you know, the enemies from invading and tearing this whole thing apart? And God goes on in the very next verse, um, in verse uh, five, he says, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. So that picture where God's going like, um, man, God doesn't protect his city with tanks and jet fighters and AK-47s. He protects it with his very presence. And that God protects his presence is experienced within the city as redemptive glory. And he says, I will be its glory within, but it's experienced outside the city as protective fire. Like I'll be a wall of fire around it. So that's one image, but I think it's this picture of God going, I'm going to protect my kingdom and I'm going to protect it from invasion by containing the destructive power of unrepentant sin and rebellion. And once again, it's God's goodness that's motivating protecting his beloved, his bride, uh, his kingdom by containing sin. Then the fifth and or the fourth and final paradigm shift there is just going, uh, I think maybe just think of it as a chamber going like, um, we want out like, God, I'm so sorry. I'll do anything. Just please forgive me. And God's going too bad. Walking away from the outside. And yet in the biblical story, I think what we really see is the deeper problem is the problem of the hardened heart. That the root problem that we have is it's not that God is cold hearted, but it's that we're hard hearted. And there's this major theme of us hardening our hearts against God and rebellion. And some have used the language of, uh, the doors of hell being locked from the inside. And, um, this is kind of that picture, and it's not saying that God's not active in judgment. God actively calls out sin, he judges, he deals with it appropriately. Um, but it is saying that God's not acting against a human repentant will. It's God's acting in alignment with our unrepentant will, like our rebellion and hard-hearted resistance and rejection against God um, is the, you, know, you can think of like sin is the root and hell is the fruit. It's sort of the outflow of desiring freedom from God. And so the question the gospel really poses for us there is, what do we really prefer? Would we rather live, uh, do we prefer worship or independence? And do we prefer communion with God or our own autonomy? Um, 
And that's kind of, I think, at the heart of the thing. But throughout, because God is good, he's on this mission to reconcile heaven and earth. He's going to establish his kingdom, you know, power outside the city. He's going to protect his city by containing sense of strict power. And his question to us is not, hey, are you good enough to get into my kingdom? His question is, will you let me heal you? Like, will you let me kind of snuff out the wildfire spark that's in you that's been setting my world aflame um, so that you can be a part of my good kingdom? Yeah. So helpful. Um, that was an incredible summary, dude. Uh, and, and, and a lot there. There was two questions that people had that I, that I think you touched on, but I think I'd, I'd just like to almost pull on some of yeah. those threads a little bit if I could. One of the questions was, was actually kind of getting a little bit more at your um, the 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 metaphor the metaphor of being tortured and and they were just asking this question of like okay if God is good you know how can he torture so if it's not if it's not torture if God's not you know actively inflicting judgment on people what is the experience that people are going through and how does you know in 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 hell and how does that maintain God's own goodness and character because I think. The problem with the torment thing is it is it actually maligns God's character to be a you know an evil God, um, but um, I know you draw a line between torture and torment a little bit in your book. Maybe unpack that a little bit um, to just pull on that thread a little bit more. Great, yeah. So I, I get into this the most specifically. There's a chapter that's on uh, all all on Lazarus and the rich man. So in Luke 16, Jesus gives famous teaching on Lazarus and the rich man and. I love his teaching. It's, it's, there's so much there that it's hard to get into it, but a few thoughts related to this. Um, one is, yeah, talking about, I think there's a, you know, to distinguish between, let's say, like what we think of as torture and torment, right? Um, torture inflicted from the outside in, torment kind of arising from the inside out, right? So uh, you can torture me by hitting me over the head with a baseball bat, right? Or I can experience torment because I have a hangover from last night and my head's throbbing, pounding from the inside out, right? Both hurt my head, but in radically different ways. And I think, um, I think what we see uh, regularly in, in the biblical depiction of judgment, the afterlife, things like that, is more the torment than uh, the torture, right? And, uh, and to use Lazarus and the rich man as an example, uh, a few observations. I go into these more deeply in the, in the chapter, but uh, one is it's interesting to me that he's not given a name. Like Lazarus is personified of the name, but the rich man is just identified by his riches. And I think there's something implicit there. Jesus is both humanizing the beggar. You know, the in in this life, like nobody knew the beggar's name. He's panhandling out on the street. He's just the homeless dude, right? Like nobody knows his name. Jesus is humanizing him. He's giving him a name and his name actually means God will help right like maybe the rich man won't help him but God will so Jesus is doing a lot even just naming Lazarus is humanizing him but the rich man like everybody knew his name right and now no nobody does he's become more anonymous like he's now identified by his love of his riches I think there's almost a sense like his love of his wealth has come to consume and overtake his identity right he's become defined by his corrupted affections this is sort of uh, another observation would be um, that the rich man doesn't ask to get out of hell, right? Like he's not going, I'm sorry, let me out, whatever. He actually, if you read it carefully, he asks 
to drag Lazarus down in there with him. He's like, send Lazarus down here with me. And the way he talks about Lazarus, he still treats Lazarus as if he's beneath him. He's like, hey, come, tell him to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. It's almost like, hey, tell my servant, lapdog, to get down here and, and serve me. It's like he's still living in refusal of God's new order and God's new kingdom and God's new way. He's still like this hard-hearted, you know, uh, resistant to it. Um, but as it relates to torment, uh, well, one other observation I think is interesting is that he's got no name. Uh, Jesus describes him, he's got no excuses. He tries to go, I have, if only you'd given me Moses or prophets or a warning. And Jesus keeps confronting going, even if you had, you wouldn't have, you know, you wouldn't have turned. And the rich man has no riches, like they've burned up in the fire of God's judgment. And so there's a sense like the toys he refused to share have now been taken away, right? And uh, so now we get to the language where he describes himself as being in agony. And that word agony is the word odunamai. And it's interesting, whenever you look uh, other places in the New Testament, wherever that word shows up, it describes not physical pain, like you're being beat up or something. It describes emotional pain over something that's, that you love that's been taken away threatened, right? Uh, so two examples. One famous one is Jesus in the temple when he's a kid. He's 12 years old. Mom and dad are like, hey, where did Jesus go? They, they forgot him. Like they run back to the temple and it says they're in agony. They were in odunomai because someone that they love, Jesus, is missing. But, and so they're, they're you know, trying to find him. Another example would be when Paul in Acts is saying goodbye to the elders of Ephesus, and he knows, they know he's going to his death. Like they're not, they're never going to see him again. And it says they wept and they were in odunamai. They were in agony, not because they were getting beat up or physically assaulted, uh, but because some, someone they love, Paul, is being taken away from them. Right? And so those are examples to go. I think the, the depiction of agony, you can make the case that the, uh, Lazar that the rich man is in agony, he's in odunamai, uh, not necessarily because he's getting physically assaulted, but because that which he loves, his riches, have burned up in the fire of God's judgment. They've been taken away from him. And we see a similar picture at the end of Revelation, when, well, when Babylon, the great city of Babylon burns, and the kings and the merchants, they weep and they wail and they cry out, oh, oh Babylon, and you basically, like our wealth was invested, our hope, everything, and now it's been burned up in the fire of God's judgment. So they weep and they wail and they're in, it's a different word, but they're in agony, it's this picture, not because they're getting physically hurt from the inside, outside in, like torture, but they're in torment from the inside out because of their corrupted affections, their false loves, and that which they invested their hope in has been taken away by God's judgment. One, the one final also here is uh, in Lazarus and the Rich Man, um, also the word torment is used. And that word torment comes from the word, uh, it's the word bosonos. And bosonos, interesting, it was a touchstone. So what a bosonos was, was a touchstone used to test jewelry. So if you had a shiny jewel and you wanted to know whether the salesperson selling to you, whether it was real or fake, uh, you would put it under the bosonos, under the torment, like under the touchstone, and you'd scrape it. And if it scraped, then it would reveal what was really on the inside, you know, that it was uh, pure or that it was fake or fraudulent. And I think what's happening in the bigger picture in the story is the, the rich man has been like this fancy, shiny jewel and his splendid clothes and his big mansion and all that stuff in this life. 
but now he's being put under the bostonos of God's judgment, like the jewel is being tested and it's revealing underneath it, he's a fake, like he's not truly one of God's people. Uh, and interestingly enough, just before Jesus launches into this story, this teaching, he's in conflict with the Pharisees. And he's told, we're told in Luke 16, the Pharisees were lovers of money. They cared more about their reputation. They didn't care about the poor, they, all these things. And so I think the story, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees going, you guys look like these shiny, impressive jewels in your fancy clothes and your rich, whatever, and your, you know, all that. Um, but your heart's not actually aligned with God's heart. And when judgment comes and you come under the, the, the bossiness of God's judgment, the touchstone of God's judgment, it's going to reveal you for the fraud that you are. And so there is something like God is active in judgment. He's not just passively, but, but I think it's his goodness that's driving the whole thing. And it's revealing the true nature of our hearts rather than kind of a vindictive, you messed up. So how can I physically? Yeah. yeah and so this is perfect because it leads to some questions we got actually about purgatory and about universalism right because the picture you painted thus far is 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 super compelling i think where the questions come in here is okay is the process the rich man is under that bossinos that he's under is that something that god in eternity can you know work out like purgatory i grew up catholic with that kind of teaching so i'm i'm familiar with that as like this purification process that then gets you into heaven so maybe talk about about the relationship between that process and 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 potential purgatory teaching, but then also the idea that okay, if if that is a part of God's salvation work, that after we die we can be purified to go to heaven, that would then infer that all people would end up in heaven. It would be kind of a universalist perspective um, that all all are saved. And so, what what kind of reactions do you have to those questions? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so a couple thoughts. One is. Um, my mind first kind of goes, so biblically kind of, what do we see? And, and one thing I think we see is around the theme of judgment. So when Jesus is talking about judgment, the picture here we see is that God is setting his world right. He's revealing things as they really are. He's dealing with the violence of history, the deception of appearances that often there's things going on behind the scenes that we don't see and know, and God's bringing that stuff out and dealing with it. Um, and God ultimately is out to heal and restore creation. His judgment is oriented towards, you know, restoring, but he does it by dealing with unrepentant sin is, 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 is key there. And constantly in Jesus's teaching and judgment, New Testament teaching on judgment and the Old Testament, there's this theme of God separating. And so God's separating the righteous from the wicked, separating the wheat from the tares, separating the sheep from the goats. Um, so that image of separation is a, is a very common theme. And I, I think we see uh, some strong passages that speak to like an everlasting nature of that. So Matthew 25 verse 46 is the sheep and the goats and it talks about um, some to everlasting, uh, um, uh, like the kingdom, the eternal kingdom and the other like eternal punishment. And the Greek word there is Ionos is like the age of the kingdom or the age of punishment. And the language there of like, it's very Old Testament as you go back to like where God is constantly setting before his people, hey, there's two paths, or there's two trajectories. One leads to life and blessing and abundance. The other leads to the curse and uh, sin and death, right? You know, judgment, curse, and death. And I think here we see Jesus reaffirming, kind of going, um, there is going to be like 
in order to heal the world, God's going to call out sin. He's going to separate. And the trajectory that you're on has a destination that keeps going kind of thing. Right. Uh, another passage, first Thessalonians, or no, I'm sorry, second Thessalonians one, uh, I think verse nine, but it uses similar language to talk about Jesus coming in blazing glory, but to judge and deal with sin and all those things. So, so there's that kind of theme just going, you know, what do we see biblically, but theologically, as I mentioned earlier, I think the root issue becomes the problem of the hardened heart, right? You know, and um, sometimes people will ask me like, well, do you think we get a second chance after die? And my answer is no, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's the picture that we get um, biblically, but I don't think it's because God's cold hearted, like, ah, too late, you missed your chance kind of thing. I, I think it's actually that the problem of the hardened heart means that your answer would be the same, you know? Like, uh, I think of my kids where, I don't know if my kids like, uh, I don't know, daddy, I hate you, I hate you. They don't actually say that, but if they did, you know, like, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And then like, they saw me bring ice cream out on the table. Oh, dad, I love you. You know, like, like, like their attitude changes. Well, it's not actually me. It's just, they just want the ice cream. And I think sometimes we think about God that way with the Trinity, you know, like, if I live this life going, God, I don't want you. I actually prefer life on my own. I want time. I want my life on my own terms. But then you see kind of the, the ice cream or the goodies of the kingdom or whatever, you know, and then you're like, oh, no, God, I, I love you. I want to follow you. You know, like God's not cool. Like he sees through that. And so I think often there's kind of an implied, oh, when we see the goodies, we'll want the God, you know, but God actually sees through that. I think the real question is, do we want him? Or do we want God? And the final thought I, that I kind of offer, I use an example in the book, but would we really want universalism? Like if, if that's how God handled things. And I actually, when you play it out, I don't think it's actually the best option. And, and here's what I mean. If you think about the gospel as a wedding proposal, which, which I think it is. I mean, at the cross, Jesus is essentially going, I'm going to hell and back to be with you. I want to lay down my life to be with you forever. Uh, and it's essentially Jesus popping, bending on one knee and popping out the ring, you know, inviting the church to become his bride in union with him through death and into life. Right? So we think about the gospel as a wedding proposal where Jesus is saying, enter into union life with me forever. If we say no, like we're kind of going, God, I don't want it. Like I'd rather have life on my own rather than life together with you what options does god have in response right and as far as i can tell there's four um you know four options so i, I talk about the book option one would be god say well hey marry me and bring in your old lovers right which is kind of like marry me and bring in your sin bring in the stuff that you've been giving yourself to in the past and i'll just turn a blind eye let's turn a blind eye and and that's sort of god ignoring unrepentant sin and I don't think that's a good option because it just lets all the junk that tore the world apart back in, you know, kind of puts us back in the same boat we're in right now. Option two is I think God to say, hey, marry me or I'll kill you. Right? And that's sort of the annihilationism option of going, marry me or I'm going to, you know, snuff you in misery. And that's just a really bad way to propose. <laughs> like I, yeah, please don't if you're considering it, right? Um, and I, but I also think, that kind of the annihilationism option where God says, where we kind of go, man, how so bad, just put them out of their misery. 
I think it actually makes God kind of vindictive, you know, of going, I'm just going to stuff you in the end. Or um, I think bigger picture, it really minimizes the scope and power of Christ's resurrection, that Christ has conquered death and annihilation and the grave. So, but the third option, this is kind of the universalism one, is I think it's essentially universalism and purgatory and all. I think it's essentially like God going, um, marry me or I'll lock you in the basement. And the idea there being, I think it's like God saying, hey, I want to be in union with you, but if you say no, then I'm going to kind of lock you in the basement. I'm going to punish you or coerce you or abduct you, in essence, until you learn to really love me. (laughs) And in reality, I kind of want to go, dude, is that really a kind of God we want? I think it misunderstands the nature of love. Like coercion doesn't lead to love, right? Like God doesn't use hell as like a coercive measure or something to get us to learn to love him. Um, I mean, if you think about on that human analogy, like when someone's abducted, if they do develop like an attachment or an affection for their abductor, we kind of go, dude, that's distorted. Like that's unhealthy, you know? And similarly, I think, man, it, it misunderstands the nature of love that God's using coercion or punishment or torture or whatever we think is going on in hell to try and get us to learn to love him. But I also think it misunderstands the nature, the root issue with hell. Like the root issue is not God's refusal to redeem. It's our refusal to be, to be redeemed, you know? And so, um, that, and then the final option I think is for God to say, Hey, marry me or go your own way. And I think that's really more the biblical picture that we get where God's going, um, I'm inviting you into life with me. It's free. Like it costs you nothing. Like I've paid the price of the cross. I've done everything you could give me. Um, but it also costs you everything in the sense of letting go of your life lived on your own to enter in with me and uh, to do this thing together. And if we don't want that, I think God shows us enough respect to respect that decision. And he dignifies, in a sense, our rejection of the proposal. Um, so in short, I don't know, with universalism, like I, I don't feel like it does justice to the biblical kind of text and teaching on, on judgment. And I don't think it's theologically does justice to like the problem of the hardened heart and how addictively ingrained in our sin we become. And I don't even think maybe philosophically or whatever that it's the best option in that I don't think it would magnify the goodness of God. Right. So the other understanding. Yeah. yeah. And I think too, one, one helpful part about your, your history too, Josh is like, um, having worked with maybe underprivileged people and people who have been oppressed, you know, um, when we interact with them, I think one reason God wants us to know the poor is that their sense of justice is, is, is they're hoping for justice. They're hoping for judgment. They're hoping for evildoers to be uh, held accountable. Uh, and, and, and it's some of us in more privileged circumstances that tend to, cause we're not affected by, sin sometimes sometimes we're not as affected by sin so we don't see the gravity of it and i think um you quote c.s lewis that famous line he says you know like everyone kind of comes down to god saying to or them saying to god thy will be done or god saying to the person thy will be done you know um and and that relationship kind of puts the agency 
um, on, on, the, on the person uh, to, to choose God. Um, let, let's shift a little bit to, to more lighthearted topics of... Uh, <laughs> well, hey, if, I could, if I could throw one last come on the last one, it is, it, just as you're talking, it, it is interesting to me when I think 10 years ago, I feel like the question was, I think the perception, you know, like, we're so merciful, how could God judge? And I almost feel like that's flipped in some ways today, where when I think of, um, I mean, I, this isn't to uh, say good or bad, or it's just to observe, like in our culture right now, there is such a movement to uh, unmask the powerful, reveal where abuses or injustice or anything has happened. Um, but culturally, the mindset, it feels like we're much more like, do you never hear from them again? Like, shut them out. There's almost no vehicle for mercy, which which I get. But it is interesting that, like, um, I almost feel like the increasingly the mercy of God seems more scandalous to me in our cultural environment um, than the yeah. justice of God. Whereas a decade ago, at least in my circles, I felt like the justice of God felt way more scandalous because it was like, no, we're all about mercy, you know, and now today it's like, dude, expose, yeah, the abuses, the unjust, injustice, and, and, but like destroy so they never have any place in society again, you know? And right, right. Like, mercy, yeah. The entrance is more scandalous in some ways. Yeah, like uh, you, you hope your enemies don't repent, you know, that's kind of the vibe right now, um, for sure. So we got questions too about something else you write about and something you actually spoke about in in your sermon, um, you mentioned a couple of difficult texts, and one of the and one of the things you mentioned was the difficult of kind of historical context and the bridge we have to cross there. You talked about this idea of cities being more like military fortresses, but one of the questions we got was, well, in the Bible, still, um, God still, you know, when you just read it, He is commanding people to kill people to you know to go and wage war, and so. Um, this was one, you know, may, maybe spend just a few on this because this was one of the only questions we kind of got on this subject, but it is important for us to think about how can God be good when he commands the killing of other people, whether it's a city or a military fortress, like how does that reconcile with God's goodness? Great, yeah. So in the section on Holy War, just to summarize, I think a few of the big paradigm shifts there, I think it's helpful when we... Um, when we kind of frame it properly, you know? And so a few of the things I see happening as Israel enters into Canaan, uh, like Joshua judges uh, the, the, those books in that, that area of, of the Bible. A few things that I think are helpful. First is to recognize um, that this is uh, the weak versus the strong, right? So often I think when we think of holy war stuff we, we superimpose our experience of holy war we think of i don't know the crusades or things in history we think of colonialism we think of all these different things where we tend to think of holy war as the strong using god or using the gods to justify their conquest of the weak it's almost like hey pr or branding or we got our gods in the back corner of the fight ring backing us up right uh, i think it's important to notice that what's happening in the old testament is a complete inversion of that thread, right? Like this is not God, you know, the strong using the gods to justify the conquest of the weak. This is God arising on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong when it's raged for far too long. And so this is a nation of slaves 
going up against the biggest, baddest imperial powerhouses of the ancient world. You're talking about Egypt and the powers in Canaan. Um, Egypt and Canaan, they have like horses, chariots, like uh, that, those were like tanks and jet fighters in the ancient world. You know, Israel has the equivalent of sticks and stones. And so uh, the logistical reality going on is like, they should get crushed by every major. They're like a, I don't know, they're like a kindergarten, one lone kindergartner going up against the high school senior class with a wiffle bat. You know, like they, they should just get destroyed or demolished. Um, and so that power dynamic, I think, is helpful because this isn't even just like a military skirmish between two equal powers. This is uh, the superpower of the day and this nation of equivalent runs, essentially, that should just get crushed like ants under elephant speed that should get squashed. So in the book, I go into a lot more just the details of what makes Israel so small and, and the, these powers so big and powerful. There's that. I think it's also helpful to recognize that Israel's strategies are ridiculous. Like throughout the conquest of the promised land, like God's constantly telling them the stupidest sounding at face value strategy you could imagine. Like God's like, okay, Jericho, first one, the big fortress, like how are we going to do it? All right, God, what's the battle plan? How are we going to do this? So God's like, march around the walls for seven days and blow trumpets. Like, that, is, that is a stupid battle strategy, right? Uh, but there's actually a point to it and a purpose. It's to show Israel's going in a posture of worship and they're trusting God to be the one who fights on their behalf. And that's a theme that you see throughout these holy war narratives. Uh, another theme, and this relates more specifically to this question, but is that the primary language that's used for uh, Israel to do with Canaan is not to kill them off, it's to drive them out. And that driving out imagery, it should sound very familiar. It's the same phrase that's used when Adam and Eve are driven out from the Garden of Eden. It's the same phrase that will later be used over and over again for Israel, where Israel is driven out of the promised land by Babylon and by God, ultimately God's driving them out into exile because of their wickedness and rebellion. So Israel's not immune from the, that same treatment later. And whereas like the kill them off language, you know, the drastic marching orders that I talked about in the story, those, those only show up like four times, but the driving them out shows up like over 50 times. It's the dominant image. And, um, and what you start noticing when you look at the drive, drive them out language, almost always like generally like God is the primary agent doing the eviction. Like it's the language of eviction, not murder. And it's constantly like God saying like, when I drive them out before you. And so I, I think there's this picture that we should have that is um, essentially like the promise that it's like this garden of Eden land, right? this imagery of like God's special garden, the center of the world. And he has been patient where these Babylon-like powers, violent, bloodthirsty, have conquered, have taken it over, and have been wreaking havoc. Um, but now, God is evicting the violent superpower, and he's handing over his garden to a nation of homeless, wandering slaves to steward. And God's the primary one doing the eviction, kind of booting. Uh, but then, he, as he hands it over, he does increasingly invite them to participate. I, I'd see it as almost like God's doing 98 to 99% of the heavy lifting but then calling them to step in and participate with the final one to 2%, right? So, so there is a, um, yeah, so there, I mean, there, there's no getting around, there's violence, you know, but I do think it's a very different picture if we're saying uh, 
God saying, hey, indiscriminately slaughter men, women, and children, the elderly, everything else, uh, versus I think a more nuanced biblical picture is one where God's evicting the superpower and there are military skirmishes happening um, at these fortresses that are kind of the defense system. Yeah. And yeah, that that's, that, for me, that, that, that uh, doesn't conflict with, that, that seems to emphasize the goodness of God rather than the right. And, and even pulling out the biblical story even further, right, and going, the main character is not Israel. The main character is God, God's glory and goodness coming to earth and making his people right. He's using Israel, blessing them, favoring them to be a blessing to these other nations and to also be his, his, his form of judgment and eviction of sin. Um, he'll use them in the way that he chooses uh, to, to, to make his path known. And that, that kind of leads us actually to some questions that people had about Israel in particular. I was wondering if you could speak to this, not just about the Old Testament Israel, well, but actually, yeah, go for it. Really quick, there's just one final thought I want to mention really there's some, yeah. just, I think it's helpful to you. This final one on this is what really strikes me of Israel with Canaan is the patience of God. That's like, right. that's like a big one where, there's a, if you go to Genesis 15, there's this interesting story where God uh, is with Abraham. Abraham is this vision, and God essentially says, hey, your grandkids are going to go into Egypt for 400 years. They're going to be mistreated. They're gonna be and, you got, and if you're Abraham, you're going, like, why, God? Like, I've given everything to follow you. Why are you going to allow that to happen? And the response God gives is that the sin of the Amorites, the sin of the people in Canaan, has not yet reached its full extent. And what strikes me is God's essentially going, I am going to be so patient with the superpowers developing in Canaan, like that I'm going to allow, you know, it's going to be 400 years until this promise comes true because I'm being patient with, yeah, with these folks here. So what really strikes me there is like, I think there's a motif we see throughout the Bible of like God is slow to anger. He's extremely patient um, with us in our rebellion, but a patience doesn't last forever. There does come a day where God arises to deal with sin, to tear down. Yeah. 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 The, the his, set up yeah. Even the chronology is missing sometimes when maybe a skeptic or somebody comes up to us and throws these Bible verses at us. We miss the context of the long patience of God that's crossing from Genesis to Second Chronicles. We're talking about generations upon generations, even just from Genesis to Exodus mm. is a massive amount of time. Yeah, yeah. super, super helpful. So take, taking the, the biblical story down to the end into new creation, one of the questions we did get was about Israel's role um, in kind of the end times or in the judgment day and con just connected to that a little bit is i think the person's question is is a little related to modern political discourse around israel and the nation state of israel and the theology that's actually leaking into some of those discussions about israel's role and so i think the question would just be like what is the role of Israel in new creation, when we do get to the end of the story, when we do get to judgment, what is their role and how is that important to us as Christians today? Great. No, that's a good question. So uh, three, there's kind of three paradigms that I think can be helpful for trying to process 
what's God's relationship to Israel now, post Old Testament, post Christ, right? Um, and uh, okay, option number one, I think, has sometimes been called supersessionism, right? And the idea is that the church supersedes Israel. So in this view, there's kind of this sense that like, well, now that the church is here, God doesn't need Israel anymore. So kibosh and all those promises and all those things that God said and did, there's sort of a sharp dividing line between Israel and the church. So supersessionism is kind of this view that says, we'd kind of look at stuff today and go, dude, there is no place for Israel or any of that because uh, their era is done kind of thing, right? So, so that'd be one one view, I'm maybe giving a caricature, an extreme version of it, but it's kind of this sharp dichotomy between Israel's done, that's true. Uh, another view, thinking on another extreme, would be kind of a continuationist view, which would essentially say um, Israel is, uh, like Israel and the church are kind of running side by side now, right? Like God's got, now he started the church, he's got the church as one covenant people, but he's still got Israel from the Old Testament as this other covenant people going up to today. And so you would see a lot of this movement in like end times prophecy kind of stuff like going, we've got to keep an eye on, on Israel today and have these promises been fulfilled. And when this happens and it's going to be the sign of all these things unraveling, that'd be one example of an area where you'd see like strong continuationist view where you're kind of going like um, it, it's a separate from the church entirely, but kind of these two covenant peoples running in tandem. Now, my own view, uh, and those are, granted, those are probably caricatures, a kind of extreme version, but my own view would be a, a third that, that I think is kind of in, in the middle, right? and, and the way I would say it is this, that uh, God will be, you know, God, I think I would say this, God has been faithful to all his promises to Israel in Christ, like that the fulfillment of the, the hope of all the Old Testament stuff is fulfilled in Christ. And now uh, in Christ, the church arises as a Jew slash Gentile community. Uh, if you think like first century context, the proclamation went first to the Jews in Israel and then to the Jewish communities scattered throughout the Roman empire. And then Gentiles came to the faith and were grafted on into this movement. And so you have Jesus who was a Jew, <laughs> who was Jewish. You have Israel first century and beyond that becomes grafted you know, it becomes, it comes under the lordship of Christ as king. And then you've got Gentiles who form. And so the identity of the church is a Jewish Gentile, a, a Jew Gentile global community. Um, and what that means practically for me, though, is um, I'm not looking to the modern day political state of Israel for uh, trying to find when this thing happens and this thing happens, that's a sign of something in Ezekiel or in Zechariah or whatever. Like my, my lens would be to say um, that those things have been fulfilled in Christ. And now the hope for Israel is uh, as a modern day political nation state or Jewish people and all that, as for the rest of the world, as for myself included as a Gentile, it's in Jesus, and in union with Jesus, we come grafted. We we are united with the Jewish slash Gentile church. And so, does that make sense? I I think yeah. practically how that plays out is um, what I don't want to do on the supersession side is I don't want to say, 
God just kind of said, ah, done with you. It's, you know, like, right. I don't think that God abandoned his promises to Israel. I think God fulfilled his promises to Israel in Christ. And now they are yes and amen in the church, right? I also don't want to go, um, God has kind of these two covenant peoples running side by side. And so we have to kind of keep tabs on how both are doing. Um, it, it's actually, I think, uh, a richer understanding of the church as a Jewish and a Gentile community that God has reconciled and brought together in and through Christ. And that those promises that we're looking for are, God's not going to fulfill those promises outside of Christ because Christ is himself the ultimate fulfillment. Yeah, so good. And we, we see that in Jesus's ministry as he almost embodies Israel, uh, you know, in himself, almost playing out Israel's different behaviors in a more righteous way and, and leading us into this truth that he, he is now the way. You know, it's not through a nation. It's not through a society. It's not through certain laws and obligations. It's actually through him. One of the questions we got was about one of my favorite stories in Matthew 15 about the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman who's like, um, you know, heal my daughter. And he's like, I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel. And the question was like, well, isn't Jesus here to save the whole world? And his that that comment in Matthew 15 is, has always intrigued me. I didn't know if you had any kind of comments on that. I'll throw you that curveball in the middle here. But like, you know, where he said, her, her reply is, he says, I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel. And he's, and she says, even the dogs get the scraps under the table. And he says, your faith has made you well. And it's like this image of the Jew Gentile community almost beginning through Christ, um, not through her becoming Jewish. Yes. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, well, a caveat, I have not read or reflected on the passage in a long time, so I don't have like deeply formed thoughts on it, you know, but the gist of what I do think is happening, a lot of people are turned off by the fact she says, yeah, she says like, well, even the dogs eat the crumbs yeah. from the table. And, uh, and it sounds like Jesus is calling her a dog. <laughs> so, right. Uh, but I think in context, you know, uh, you mentioned earlier, Lazarus and the rich man, um, in the chapter on that, I look at the, the dogs that would come and lick Lazarus's wounds is actually right. a metaphor and image for the poor for the it, it, it if you think of it more as like a stock image um in that day for the gentiles or those outside people of god similar to like you would see um in the prodigal son story where you famously have luke 15 you have the younger brother and he winds up out herding pigs right but the pig is a gentile image because the um Jews don't eat pork, right? And so it's this image, he's at the lowest low, he's out with the pig. So I think that dog image um, probably would have sounded less uh, abrasively condescending in the way it does to us today, you know, um, and more of kind of a stock image. And what I see her doing in her encounter with Jesus is she is respecting that it's through Israel. Right. Salvation is coming. And yet she's arguing for that salvation extending beyond Israel to the Gentiles. It's almost like she is in, in her own way. She is uh, acknowledging and coming underneath. Hey, it's through the Abrahamic promises, through Israel, it's through God's people that this blessing would come even to me as part of the nations. And she's, she, it's almost like she gets it better than a lot of the Israelites that are around Jesus at the time. And he commends her faith is going partly it's, it's her faith in him and that yeah. messianic promise. Yeah. Yeah, super helpful. So 
we have questions too on the end and the end times. And we've kind of hit on this with Israel's relationship with the end and where, where Israel will land. But um, when the Bible talks about um, the end times and judgment and even like predicting the end, which um, I was telling you right when we got on, I just saw a news item that there's a fresh prediction of the end times, you know, which every election we're, we're bound for many predictions about the end times. So tell us how should we think when people make prophecies or pronouncements about the end times, how should we think about that? And what does the Bible say about kind of a time frame for the end? Great. Uh, so I'll give you my view. Obviously, there's some different views out here on this. Uh, my view would be that we have been living in the end times for 2,000 years. Right? And uh, what I mean by that, I mean, that can sound tongue-in-cheek, but I really mean it literally, that if you think about the broad scope of history and particularly of, like, of the biblical story, um, for me, this to be rooted in the, what it, the ascension of Christ, what it means that Christ has been... Uh, enthroned on the cross like crucified bearing our sin he's been resurrected and exalted and raised up to the highest place at the right hand of god's throne and what that means i mean that enthronement image that jesus is at god's right hand exalted as the king over all creation uh in part it means that there's the season of he's been enthroned but there is still rebellion until he has put all his enemies under his feet and so we live in a time right now where there is the tension of the new, the new order, so to speak, the new creation, the new order of Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. He is the rightful King over heaven and earth of all creation. That new reality has broken in and it's broken in with resurrection power and he's given his spirit. Uh, the ascension doesn't so much mean that Jesus went away as much as Jesus has been exalted. He's poured out his presence through his people all across the earth. Uh, and yet, there is conflict because we live in a world that still lives in allegiance to the old order that is resistant to the kingdom reign of God that has come in Christ. And so that conflict, I think, of kingdoms is the end times, the last 2,000 years, the exaltation of Christ yet in a world that is still opposed to the kingdom reign of, of God and his, his king. Um, so... So there's that. But I know that like, I think what what people are getting at by the question is important too. of kind of going like, well, is there a time when things really kind of hit the fan, you know, <laughs> like, like we kind of, and I yeah. know for a lot of, let me quickly interject, because there's another question that I think you could tackle right here, which is just talking about how the New Testament does seem to talk about the end times being close. Um, but 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 we're reading it. We're going. That was two thousand years ago. Um, so I wanted to interject that as you're talking. Oh, great. Okay, yeah. So there is language in uh, the New Testament talks about like the the end is near kind of thing, right? And uh, let's see if I can summarize. This is a big big topic, but I think um, let me summarize this. There were some big events that happened within a generation of Jesus' death. So in seventy A.D. Right, uh, events that really kind of ended uh, the Jewish system of worship and sort of the world as they knew it. So, the event in AD 70, the Roman Empire comes in and demolishes the temple, Masada, Jerusalem. Like, it's an early event. And, um, and when you look in Jesus in the New Testament, a lot of Jesus' warnings and predictions, um, I would suggest, and I think 
host of theological scholarship and all would say, Jesus is predicting, a lot of his end times language is about God's coming judgment on the temple, its leadership on Jerusalem. And when you think about the, the magnitude of what that event meant, it was the end of the sacrificial system. It was the end of the priesthood. It was the end of right, the ability to worship in the way that they had uh, in, throughout Israel's history. Uh, it entirely revolutionized the way Judaism understood itself as a scattered community. And Jesus, uh, I'll give one example. I think you, when you start reading Jesus through this lens, you see him warning his people over and over again. And I think we often jump to thinking, oh, he's talking about the end of the world. <laughs> but I think he's talking about the, God's coming judgment on Israel. So one example I, do, I just preached on uh, this, this month was when Jesus's actions in the temple where he's got the whip and he's driving out the animals and he's turning over tables and he's pouring out the money and the money changers, all that kind of stuff. And um, I think sometimes we talk about that event as, oh, he's cleansing the temple. Like he's really angry because these people have set up shop and they shouldn't be there and he's pushing them out. But I think it's better to understand what he's doing, not as trying to clean up the temple, but as a prophetic act of tearing down the temple. He's like symbolically bringing down the house saying, the temple is about to get destroyed because we're dying. What I mean by that is when you read back in the Old Testament, like Jeremiah, for example, God says, here's why the temple is going to go down. And he gives this laundry list of how rebellious and horrible the people have been, have been. And that's the passage that Matthew, Mark, and Luke quote when they talk about Jesus' actions in the temple. It's God saying, I'm going to tear down the temple. When you talk about like money changers, animals, stuff being in the temple courts, uh, they were supposed to be there. You go back in Deuteronomy 24 and it talks about, I think it's 24, 24, 29. But it talks about like, hey, when the temple's established, uh, people are going to be traveling from far away. And so if you've got too many animals or whatever to bring, exchange it for money, come to the temple and then exchange your money for animals. So there's supposed to be animals, money changers, all that is supposed to be, God says that's supposed to be in the temple courts, right? But the picture here, I think, is Jesus is going, um, it's, it's almost like Banksy, right? It's public art, or it's a, a prophetic signpost, like prophets often did, where Isaiah lays on his side 430 days or something. Or no, Isaiah walks around naked, Ezekiel lays on his side 430 days, cooking his food over dung, uh, Jeremiah smashes this clay pot outside the walls. They do these dramatic actions, but all those actions were designed to say God's judgment is coming on Jerusalem or the temple. Jesus is doing a same, I think, a symbolic prophetic action. And it's the action that he gets killed for, we're told in the synoptics, is because he's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and right before and after that is the scene where Jesus curses the fig tree. You know, he, right before he goes into Jerusalem and wreaks havoc, he curses the fig tree. And then they come out afterwards and the fig tree is, is withered, which is like bookends his actions in the temple. And when you go into the Old Testament, the fig tree was an image for Jerusalem. It was supposed to bear fruit. It was supposed to give things to the nations. And so I think the issue is not that Jesus hates fig trees, right? Like the issue is that it's a picture of Jerusalem and the temple and its leadership. And Jesus is saying, because you've been unfruitful, you're going to be cursed. And now I'm going to go do this signpost that. Right after that is that famous passage where Jesus says, uh, it, it tells his disciples, if you say to this mountain, be moved and thrown into the sea, it'll happen. And we go, Mount Everest, you know, move, be thrown into the sea. But if you think about where he's at when he says this, they're right outside Jerusalem, Mount Zion. They're in the shadow of Mount Zion. And it's as Jesus just did these 
actions of the temple and curse of the fig tree. I think the obvious message is, um, if you say to this mountain, Mount Zion, <laughs> be thrown into the sea, the Gentiles, the powers, judgment's coming on the temple. And if you have faith that you will be a part of the new mountain that God's establishing this new movement, and you'll see, you know, God's judgment on the old. So that's long-winded, but in short, uh, a lot of Jesus's kind of end times stuff he talks about, I, I think sound like he's talking about something really close because he is. He's talking about, um, I think he's confronting Israel and the temple leadership saying, because you've rejected me and because of your hard-hearted, stubborn, rebellious ways, judgment is coming upon Jerusalem, the temple, Israel as we know it. And the only way out is union with me. You know, I'm going to bear the curse and come under me to be a part of what God will bring about on the other side. Right. A, a day is coming where you won't have a temple. So now receive me as the temple. There is a day coming where you won't make sacrifices. So receive me as the sacrifice, right? That's, that's kind of the urgency in Jesus's message that I think your picture actually helps us paint and, and also reminds us of the complexity of, of those passages. I mean, they, these are passages that require interpretation. And I thought what your sermon did a couple of weeks back was really helped us remember that we're not reading any book here. We're not just reading this book we can pick up and easily understand. We actually have to cross some bridges. We got a couple questions from your sermon kind of based around some of the things that you had said. So to pivot a little bit, if we could, there was some questions about um, using some of your interpretive um, skills and some of the kind of toolkit you gave us um, around some problem passages or even around some things that culturally are difficult. So a couple questions around um, homosexuality, and, and I know you're actually doing writing on that right now, and maybe Lord willing will be the next book. Um, and so I, the question, one of the questions in particular about homosexuality was, are these passages, you use the, the determination of prescriptive and descriptive. Um, and so maybe recap that idea a little bit, but then also, could you take the teaching, the church's teaching on, on homosexuality and the Orthodox Christian historic teaching on that and help us understand, are those passages prescriptive or descriptive and how, how can we best interpret it, interpret that? Yeah, great question. Uh, yeah, so actually a few, few side notes. Uh, so the book I'm on right now is, is more on uh, sexuality as a whole. It's trying to give a, a compelling vision yeah. of the beauty of the Christian sexual ethic and some of the, the positive, um, beautiful things that God's designed this to, to point to. Um, but uh, okay, and then the dis descriptive prescriptive. So in the sermon, just to recap, that was saying that um, as we're reading a tough passage in the Bible, we should ask, is this describing something or is it prescribing something? Is it like a newspaper reporter just saying this happened, even though maybe what happened was really bad, not according to God's desire or will, you know, or is, um, is this prescribing? Is this saying, this is the way, like a doctor prescribing a medicine saying, hey, this is the way you should live. This is the way it should be. So you see a lot of gnarly things described in the Bible that are sinful, heinous, and the Bible doesn't always come right out and say that's bad. You know, it has a more nuanced way of, um, of, uh, yeah, of critiquing subversively practices that you shouldn't do. So, uh, so the question is raised to sexuality, particularly for same-sex sexual relationships and all. Um, uh, 
a few thoughts on this. One is, I think where the question is getting at is there are six main passages that are usually pointed to when it relates to the conversation about uh, homosexuality or same-sex sexual relationships. Um, so uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is one, then there's in Leviticus laws, then there's uh, Romans 1 is a big one. Uh, there's passage, uh, two, two kind of epistle passages. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah comes up sometimes. And, um, and in short, I think it depends which passage we're talking about, right? So if, if I just kind of, uh, but I think a lot of them, I would say, are prescriptive. And here's what I mean. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is the big one. God creates humanity as image, male and female, he made them. And then Genesis 2 uh, says, for this reason, the two will become one flesh, uh, family. And there are a number of reasons I think that's prescriptive, but maybe the big, big one is that Jesus himself taught them as prescriptive. So when you go to um, Matthew 19, and Jesus is talking about divorce, and as Jesus is talking about divorce, he gets asked this question, like, is it okay to divorce for any reason? And there's, there's a whole context of this discussion that's going on in, in that day. But to summarize what he says, Jesus asked them, have you not read? And they, um, have you not read? And then he quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It says, have you not read that at the beginning, God made them male and female? There he's quoting Genesis 1. Then he goes right on and says, and said, uh, the two will become one flesh. There he's quoting Genesis 2. And so what Jesus is doing is he's, they're asking him this question about sexual ethics. And Jesus is going back to Genesis 1 and 2. And he's upholding it and going, this is God's paradigm. Haven't you read your Bible? <laughs> he's essentially, I love Jesus. Like, haven't you been reading your Bible? You know, like Genesis 1 and 2, this is God's prescriptive design for sexuality. And therefore, since the two become one flesh, don't separate them. And one of the things that's interesting there is he's, he's talking about divorce because that was the live issue in his day. But all Jesus really needs to do to address divorce is quote Genesis 2, is to say, to become one flesh, so don't rip it apart, right? Like don't, don't rip apart a marriage, that one flesh union, divorce. Um, but Jesus goes further than that. He also quotes Genesis 1 and affirms the diversity of male and female as being central to marriage which he doesn't really need for his argument, but it's almost like he goes out of his way to say, hey, both the male and female of Genesis 1, that God created this, this diversity in humanity, that this diversity is significant to God's design for what marriage is supposed to be. And, and, and likewise, the union, these two being able to come together and become one, that's a sexual image, but also speaks to this whole life union. So to summarize, Jesus is saying Genesis 1 and 2 is prescriptive. That's the way he reads it. Um, and then they go on and they say, well, hey, but Moses said it's okay. And he goes, well, he allowed an exception because of your hardened hearts. But now in Christ, like I'm calling you back to creation. Like I'm, I'm calling you back to God's creational design, his vision in that sense. Um, so in short, I think Genesis 1 and 2 are clearly prescriptive. Uh, when you get to Leviticus and you have a whole host of laws in uh, Leviticus dealing with sexual relationships, which kind are appropriate, which kind are not, there's a ton of them. And that, that's clearly prescriptive for Israel because it's law. It's their legal code. code. It's, this is the way you're supposed to live. These are things you're not allowed to do. Right Now, the question often comes up there. Um, 
that uh, well it also has things like don't eat shellfish and don't wear clothes made with two fibers and so you know how do you make sense of those and this goes back to kind of what we talked about in in the sermon kind of wrestling with even with prescriptive we have to ask does this apply for us today or not and and i would suggest that it does uh, a couple of reasons short answer would be the new testament uh recapitulates it, the new testament reaffirms the sexual ethics of israel's law basically says a lot of israel's law was to keep israel distinct as a nation now that's been done away with in christ but idolatry and sexual immorality are still off the table and uh, there's a scholar scott mcknight i like the way he puts it he talks about like uh if you were to ask a someone in jesus's day a jewish person what is sexual immorality or pernea? What does it mean? How do you define sexual morality? If you were to like click on that hyperlink, they would take you back to Leviticus, um, the sexual code Leviticus is being applied. So we keep going, you know, Romans one, I think um, Paul's more describing something in Romans one than, than prescribing it, but it's very clear that he sees uh, same-sex sexual activity as, as a negative rejection of God's design and, and, uh, and all and similar with the other passages. So, so to the question itself, I'd say, yeah, I think most of those are prescriptive, not descriptive. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah is maybe an exception because I think you could say that's describing, it's describing an event and it's describing gang rape, not necessarily like consensual, consensual monogamous, whatever. So I don't know that Sodom and Gomorrah might not be the best passage to look through in Iraq. But here would be the bigger thing for me uh, on the, the sexuality conversation is um, what's, what's most helpful for me has not necessarily been what are the laws or the rules or what does God prescribe? It's more been to zoom out and go, what has God designed sex to do or to be? And, and uh, the main claim of the book I'm working on is that um, God's designed it to be iconic, to be a window into these greater realities, right? And so, for example, I think it's designed to point us to be a window or a picture to who God is. And so when we see God's faithfulness to us, that God is faithful love, he's not going anywhere. God's like, dude, I'm, I'm in through thick and thin. God is faithful to us. He never abandons his promises. He never forsakes us. Um, we see God's faithfulness, I think we begin to understand why adultery is so tragic. Because if marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, then adultery becomes a window into an unfaithful God, a God who betrays his promises. That marriage has been invested with this holy weight of bearing witness to the kind of God that God is, you know? Or if we think about uh, premarital sex, we see that God is a covenant God. God doesn't... Uh, you know, God commits to us before he unites with us. God says, I'm all in. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to, I'll be with you through thick and thin. I'm going to hell and back to be with you. Like I'm laying down my life. And we see God's commitment on the front end before he unites with us of committing himself to us. Um, go a lot more in the book, but like how the, the covenant imagery that's used for God throughout the Bible is consistently it's marital imagery. And there's this interplay where, Marriage on the human level is designed to display the type of relationship that God desires with us in covenant with him on a vertical level. Uh, and similarly, I'd say, like, I use the phrase diversity and union to look at, like, God's heart in creation. We see these constant themes of God creating diversity that's intended to be brought together in union. 
heaven and earth, land and sea, night and day, man and woman. And the problem with divorce, Jesus quotes Genesis 1 2, so the problem with divorce is it violates the union side of the equation. It takes the one flesh and tears it apart. And because of that, it gives us a picture of Christ and his church not being eternally secure, you know, of, of that relationship being ripped apart. Uh, and Paul in Romans 1, he quotes Genesis 1 2 and says that same sex sexual activity violates the diversity side of the equation, that it's same with same rather than difference in harmony. And in so doing, it, uh, it, it's not iconic. It's unable to actually form a one flesh union that bears witness to the ultimate diversity of God and humanity as two distinct different types of entities that God, though ultimately in the gospel is uniting and bringing together in this picture of Christ and the church. Um, so it's a long-winded answer, but I think I'd say, yeah, uh, the, the verses are primarily, I'd say prescriptive rather than descriptive, but in the bigger picture, there's a beautiful vision here that God has designed sex and marriage to point to that it's ultimately a picture of who God is and the nature of the gospel. Yeah, that, that's going to be a great book, man. And we, we look forward to it and appreciate all the work that you're doing. I wonder if you could close with more of a pastoral word to us, Josh, of you know, a lot of us are um, in our church um, are either, you know, just younger, we're a younger church. And um, just curious of like, you know, you've had a long history with, like you said, interacting with people who have questions about faith and stuff. And maybe you could just help us um, with closing on a pastoral note of when we, when we have questions or when we are encountering questions from others, what, what kind of posture should we be taking um, when we encounter these things, because I think for some of us, we, we run into questions of the Bible and it, it kind of freezes us and paralyzes us, or someone asks us a question and it freezes us and paralyzes us. Maybe give a couple of tips for us of like, man, how can we have good posture that's humble and confident? Um, any thoughts on that as we close? It's great. Yeah. Uh, two thoughts come to mind. One is become a good question asker, right? And and what I mean by that is, I think often we feel the pressure to be the answer givers, you know? So, I mean, I look back years ago, say when I first became a Christian, I'm with my college roommate, and what do you think about hell, you know? And uh, do you think I'm going to hell, you know? And, and like, I didn't know what to say, you know? And, and, and in retrospect, uh, but it was, but anyways, I, I think I said something like, um, I don't know, I guess... God's territory. I guess you have to take that up with him. You know, in retrospect, I think that was a pretty good answer. You know, like, I, I don't know. But what I found is helpful, I think today, like if someone were to say like, same thing, like, do you know I'm going to hell? Or, you know, ask a question about hell. I think I would probably spend a lot more time asking questions like, well, what do you think hell is? You know, like, can you describe it for me? You know, and often when I found they do, I'm like, well, I don't believe in that either. You know, yeah. or, um, or uh, why, why does that question trouble you? you know, and maybe there's something behind it. Maybe they've had experienced abuse in the past or some, I don't know, you know, but at the heart of it, I mean, this can sound cliche, but I think it's really true that people won't care how much you know until they know how much you care, you know, and that one of the primary goals, if I'm in a conversation with someone that's around these tough questions and all, one of my primary goals is not so much to get them the answer or try and convince them or shoot for them in, it's to care for them by trying to really listen to the heart of the question and to press in. And, and, and then sometimes I think being too quick with the answers, so to speak, you know, can 
um, you can win the battle and lose the war. <laughs> you know, like where it's it's worth taking the time to care for someone by really asking. And and I found that that tends to to open up the heart space for the person to kind of be more interested or willing to receive. I think sometimes we ask questions. It's almost like at first they're testing the waters to kind of find out is this even is this person even safe to ask these questions with and. I think um, an emphasis on asking good questions is a way of caring for people and really trying to get to the heart behind the question. Related to that, I'd say be aware that religious questions are often a smokescreen for deeper issues. <laughs> like, I can't tell you how many times I've had people that like, and this is often maybe more in the church even, but like people where, dude, elders in the past or people in the faith, they're like, I'm just really, I don't know about this thing about God anymore. There's this verse or this thing or whatever. And so I spend hours trying to process through it with them. I do research, I come back. And, and then six months later, I find out they've been having an affair for a year. <laughs> you know, and you're just kind of going like, that wasn't, the question wasn't the question. You know, it's almost like I've seen so many times in the past where it's like, you want out and you're creating this question where you know you're even painting god with whatever kind of brush strokes because you're trying to start to justify or pave the way to bail you know and so i think at the end of the day going like now we can trust god and his sovereignty and it's not on us to feel like we gotta save the world but we do want to be faithful witnesses and so we can ask good questions and and yeah the the second thought i'd say this is a short one but i like the way a friend of mine put it years ago he was like um I used to think of evangelism or apologetics, whatever. I used to think of it more like a chess match. And now I think of it more as like setting someone up on a blind date. You know? And what do you mean by that? It's like, I used to think of it as like a chess match where like, okay, they're going to make their move and I'm going to make mine. And it's like, I'm, I'm trying to win. You know, like the goal is to conquer. The goal is to beat them in this conversation about Jesus, you know? And it's like the shift was going, actually, it feels more like I actually know someone that I think is the best person for you. Maybe you've never met them, but I actually think they're better for you than anyone else out there. And my goal is to try and introduce you to that person. And in doing so, it means I care about you and I want to get to know more about who you are and your heart, your story, your history, and, and some of the unique angles of who you are that Jesus uniquely meets, you know? Um, but I think having that kind of posture of going, I want to introduce, I'm not up to beat you, you know, but I want to introduce you to the person that I think is actually best for you. That's super helpful, man. Thank you so much. 